Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 5th, 2014. I think I got it all worked out here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open our Bibles, and pay attention to the details of what's going on in these texts. Um, Yeah, again, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's theonoustos. That means it's inspired. This is a revelation from God. Slow down, pay attention to the grammar, nouns and verbs, and what those verbs are doing and who's doing them. They all matter. It, it, in fact, it, it matters quite a bit. In fact, a good biblical exegete is somebody who in, it basically employs the stuff that they learned when they were in grade school, when it comes to reading comprehension, paying attention to who the paragraph, the subject of the sentence is about, what that subject is doing. Yeah, details, details, details. They matter quite a bit. Now, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. It's going to seem like we're all over the map. But oddly enough, this episode has a theme, and I'm not going to say it, although I've kind of hinted at it in uh, the opening of um, you know the opening montage. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to start off today, hour number one. We've got three things that I want to accomplish. Three things. We're going to first take a listen to <laughs> the most recent video put up by uh, Patricia King over at xpmedia.com. And it's entitled Spiritual Gates, Spiritual Gates. And this is one of those ones where you just go, what is she saying? Where is she getting this? You see, um, part of Patricia King's problem, and believe me when I tell you, she has a big problem and it's multifaceted. The part of her problem is is that she has no concept of sound biblical exegesis, and she fills in gaps where there's no gaps to fill in. And the things she fills it in with, the, the gaps that she's <laughs> filling in, she's filling it with nonsense from her brain rather than actually something that's in Scripture. It's actually fascinating to watch. So we're going to be le- learning about spiritual gates. Um 
And uh, I might have to play my standard warning for this because it's it's out there. It's it's really far out there as far as what she's saying. Then what we will do, um, we'll switch gears and we have an emergent church update. Now, the reason I say this is an emergent church update is because this has all the look and feel of um, a new enterprise put out by, perp- not purpose-driven, but um, postmodern liberals, okay? Uh, if you uh, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you'll know on my Facebook wall, somebody recently posted ar- uh, links to an article at World Net Daily that point out the fact that the uh, the Christian singer Gunger, yeah, Michael Gunger, I, yeah, I don't know much about this guy, um, he recently appeared in a brand new, and I mean this, brand spanking new podcast called The Liturgists. And listening to The Liturgist podcast, oh, it just takes me back. It takes me back, you know, like eight, ten years. And the reason I say that is, is because this has all the look and feel and uh, philosophical worldview concepts that, um, uh, you know, we all experienced when the emergent church was, you know, oh, the bee's knees and everybody, you know, everybody was trying to figure out how to get the the leaders from the emergent church to come to their churches to save them from irrelevance. Yes, <laughs> you know, you got to save us. Our churches are shrinking and, and, and we've got to figure out how to be appealing to the younger postmodern crowd. How do we do this? And so these, you know, guys like Doug Paget. Tony Jones, uh-huh, yeah, these, some of these, yeah, and Brian McLaren and others would show up at churches and explain to them how they can be relevant, how Christianity can be relevant to a postmodern youthful audience kind of thing. And all it did was basically take uh, modernist liberalism and replace it with postmodern liberalism. Now, postmodern liberalism and um, uh, modernist liberalism are two different things. They're still liberal. But they have different assumptions regarding how the world works. And so, uh, anyway, Gunger was uh, basically saying, and, and this was covered in World Net Daily, that um, it doesn't bother him if, if Jesus lied or was wrong about Noah and Adam. It doesn't bother him at all. <laughs> and, yeah, the thing is, is that if you actually believe your Bible, uh, it should bother you a lot. If Jesus was wrong about that, what else is he wrong about, you know? So, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff that we need to take a look at there. So we're going to do an emergent church update uh, with this brand spanking new emergent postmodern endeavor called the Liturgist Podcast, which I'm, wow, I'm excited. We're going to have regular emergent church updates. And see, that's the thing is um, since Tony Jones and Doug Padgett and McLaren basically just completely took everybody into the liberal ditch. And I, and I mean that. The, what they ended up having to do is they could no longer be the front men because they weren't being invited to evangelical churches anymore to come spread their postmodern liberalism. And so what, they, what the emergent church did is they fielded a new team. And, you know, they, you know it, so they fielded a new team. And Rachel Held Evans, uh, Rachel Held Evans, uh, she's been playing on Team Emergent for a while now. But, see, the thing is, is that even she has gotten to the point where she's steering everybody into the liberal ditch. And she's not being invited to as many places anymore. And she's not quite as whimsical or popular as she used to be because everybody knows what is she. She is a gay-affirming postmodern liberal. That's what she is. And so, well, you know, the Emergent Church, they never give up. You know, they've, so what they're doing is they're fielding a new team. 
and uh, Science Mike and Michael Gunger. You know, these guys, they're uh, <laughs> in this liturgist podcast, has the look and feel of maybe what we're seeing is uh, the emergent church getting ready to field their 2015 uh, team, you know. So it just I'm just telling you, that's what it feels like to me. But, uh, you know, I, what do I know? I've you know just spent you know, more than a decade studying and refuting the emergent church and postmodern liberalism, which is a very nasty, nasty, nasty form of liberalism. And uh, it's, it basically rots away your faith and makes you think that doubt is somehow a virtue when it comes to the Christian faith. It's not. Uh, doubt is the very thing that the, that the serpent tried to create in Eve and succeeded at when he asked the question, did God really say? So um, we'll take a... Uh, We'll take a listen to that, and then uh, we somewhere in there we'll, we'll take a break. When we come back, uh, we're, we're going to uh, take a listen to Paula White. Yeah, I know, a money-grubbing televangelist, and I thought it was fascinating. If you notice uh, that there were several things that we did this week uh, in Fighting for the Faith, and I kind of circled back and did some more teaching on vision casting and, this, uh, and the uh, misuse of Proverbs 29.18. Well, we're going to hear the kind of the quintessential uh, money-grubbing televangelist take in uh, misquoting uh, Proverbs 29.18 so that you can kind of see how that is done. And then listen, anytime you hear, I mean, I don't care who it is, if it's, even if it's me, if, you know, 10 years from now, you know, I, I somehow go off the theological rails and I start telling you, oh yeah, listen, God has a unique vision for your life. And, and uh, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says that uh, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I start t- sounding like somebody like that, you know, like you know, uh, who, Chris Hodges, who you heard yesterday, or some vision casting leader, or whatever. You know what you need to do? You need to stop listening to me. That's what happened. Yeah, serious. If I start talking like that, you need to stop listening to me. You know, I've clearly lost my mind, and something has gone haywire, and I'm not confessing the Christian faith anymore. And so the idea is that somebody who is teaching you that Proverbs 29:18 is about some unique vision that God's supposed to give you if any I don't care who the person is anybody who's telling you that is twisting God's word and is teaching false doctrine and you need to stop listening to them that that's basically what it boils down to you don't want to fill your mind with false teaching uh, at least in the sense that you know it's being promoted to you as if it's Christianity now we we isolate it here and we give it to you uh, kind of in a weakened form in order to inoculate you against these uh, these twistings of Scripture. And then in hour number two, by the way, hour number two, we are going to be uh, featuring a, a couple of sermons by the Reverend Dr. Matt Richards. Oh, man, I, I am so glad that uh, Matt, uh, who is a personal friend of mine, uh, he was at my installation service at Kongsvinger, and in fact, he passes a church not too far from me, you know, kind of like an hour or something down the road. But uh, Matt is—he's uh, recording his sermons now, and he's going to be brought. And we're going to be broadcasting his sermons on Pirate Christian Radio starting next week. And just watch our—I think we're going to uh, slot him in on Wednesdays. But uh, we, just to kind of whet your appetite for what it is that uh, you can look forward to on Pirate Christian Radio with uh, Matt Richards' uh, sermons, we're going to play a couple of them for you today. A couple of his most recent ones, and they are just absolutely stellar. And Matt, of course is somebody who pays very close attention to what's going on in these biblical texts, and he preaches Christ and him crucified from them and does it brilliantly, brilliantly. I mean, yeah, I I think I have some things to learn from Matt. Anyway, 
So that's going to round out our program today, and uh, I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We do have a lot of ground to cover, and uh, since we're going to be starting off with kind of a bizarre, and I do mean that, bizarre Patricia King uh, video, well, we we need to protect you. And, oh, uh, by the way, somebody said that, uh, you know, after listening to a segment on last week's, one of one of last week's episodes of Fighting for the Faith, uh, that <laughs> that they think they're now suffering from restless leg syndrome. So we need to add a new warning here. Warning, Fighting for the Faith could cause restless leg syndrome, but you need to hear this. Warning, Fighting for the Faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You've been warned. So, um, did you know that the Bible teaches that, um, that there are spiritual gates that open up above your head and, and, um, and that God's blessing and favor, um, come pouring out of these spiritual gates that apparently open up over your head? <laughs> you know, I see, I never have seen that in scripture either. So, you know, it, it's one of these things where I'm just thinking, where on earth did Patricia King get this? But she's going to try to prove this to you from scripture. Here's uh, Patricia King to explain to us the significance of the biblical teaching, and I have to put that in air quotes, regarding spiritual gates. Yep, here we go. There, I want to speak about spiritual gates today. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to the gate of heaven. Okay, so you want to draw my attention to the gate of heaven. Okay, I mean, sounds harmless enough, doesn't it? And I'm going to use Genesis 28 as a text. Uh, we see the story of Jacob's dream from verse 10. Um, all the way down to verse 17 out of Genesis 28. So I'm going to highlight that. As you know, Jacob had a dream, okay? When he woke up from that dream, in verse 16, it says he woke up from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Okay, yes, that's what he said. Um, Okay, so yes, we have a mention of the gate of heaven where, um, you know, Jacob's ladder. By the way, Jacob's ladder is not a what, it's a who. It is, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Kind of, you know, hard to explain that here now, but... Um, maybe I'll have to tease that out sometime in the future. Stay tuned. We'll, 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 we've covered this in the past, um, you know, here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, in particular a Jeremy Rohde sermon that we played in the past archives of Fighting for the Faith. You might want to hunt it down. But okay, so so we've got in Genesis 28 a mention of the gate of heaven. Okay, so far, so good. No problems so far. She seems to be paying attention to the details of what the text says. Okay, but yeah, with uh, Patricia King, she's not capable of sound biblical exegesis. So just hang on to your shorts. Here we go. And 
That is a very profound teaching, and of course, there's lots to draw out of it. Uh-huh. But we're talking about the subject of gates today. Yeah. And so I want to um, also highlight in your Bibles, if you could turn there to Matthew uh, chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. She sees this as a cross-reference to what we just read in Genesis 28. Hmm, okay. And this is where uh, Jesus was baptized the baptism of Jesus Christ. And it said that in verse um, 16, and being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Mm -hmm. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, so far, I mean, we're like one minute and 30 seconds into this Patricia King Segment And all she's done so far is read for us two different passages. Now, whether or not Matthew 3 is a cross-reference to Genesis 28, yeah, that's kind of a stretch. This is kind of bad biblical matrixing that's going on here. But stay tuned. It's it's going to get worse. Now, theologically, we see Jesus opening the gates of heaven... 2,000 years ago through his identification with repentance. Jesus. No, 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 no. See what she did there? She says, see, look at Jesus opened the gates of heaven through his identification with repentance. Um, Yeah, no, that is not what the text says. Now, notice she said theologically. No, that's not what's going on here at all. What you just said isn't borne out, number one, in any clear passage. You're interpreting that in a, in a way that is not consistent with how anybody has understood this text, especially even how it's uh, explained in other parts of Scripture. So we've got a problem. Jesus didn't open the gates of heaven. It says Jesus was baptized and the Spirit descended like a dove and the voice was from heaven was heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Doesn't say anything about a gate opening up. Okay, We have the Spirit descending and a voice from heaven. That's it. So now she's kind of jumped the tracks and she's gone beyond the text. Jesus took the waters of baptism, but he didn't actually need to be baptized because that was for for repentance from sin, but he had never sinned. So why did he do it? Yeah, according to Jesus, it's to fulfill all righteousness. That's the answer to the question, by the way, that, um, you know, because remember when Jesus came to uh, John the Baptist, John said, hey, listen, I, I, you, I need to be baptized by you, you know, and Jesus said, let it be so for now in order to fulfill all righteousness. That's the answer as to why, okay? He did it. As an identificational act for you and I. And when he came up out of the waters, the heaven opened over him. The heavens are still open over him. You'll also. The heavens are still opened over him? Jesus ascended into heaven. What are you talking about? So notice that when the gates of heaven opened, when heaven opened, a dove came down, the spirit came down. Uh And so when Christ is in you, living inside of you, heaven is open over you. (laughs) he just can't make this up i mean that is just preposterous absolutely hermeneutically absurd (laughs) why does this woman feel like she's a blessing to the body of jesus she's a bane she's she's a she's like a disease 
Good night. There's like this open portal. It's a gate into heaven. That is what Jacob saw in the Old Testament. (laughs) He said, is this not the house of God? This is the gate of heaven, the opening to heaven. Now, Jesus said that he is the door. He said, no man comes to the Father except by me. So you have a gate the gate of heaven that you have complete access to, that you can can go into, that you can go through. Where in the scripture does it say that I have a gate that I can enter into and go through? What are you talking about? You're like mixing metaphors here. I mean, you're now you're just jumbling stuff to try to to, to somehow proof text this absurd thing that you're saying. But these texts don't say any of that. Anybody who reads Genesis 28 and then reads uh, Matthew 3, uh, just on a cold reading, none of them are going to come up with, and you know what this means? Wow, there's an open gate that, you know, because we're in Jesus and identified with repentance, that we can now jump through this gate and, and go into the spiritual gates of heaven. This is nonsense. It's gobbledygook. And in my glory school teaching, I actually... Oh, man. And in her glory school teaching. So now we get a plug for her glory school. Good Actually, night. Teach um, line on line, precept on precept, all the way through the scripture about how God has given us access into that place. When you live in that open heaven, when you live under that open heaven, that gate. So you have to live under it. Yeah. So whatever you do, don't live to the side of it or in front of it or behind it. Yeah, you got to live under it, you know. Because the spatial thing really matters regarding this open gate thing. And so, you know, I'm kind of hoping that the gate is wide enough that, you know, when I'm in my truck, you know, that it, it, got, it has me covered while I'm driving, you know. That open gate, the blessings of the Spirit of God will come on you. His wisdom will fill you. His knowledge, his understanding. I, I, wow, you're making all of these promises associated with this open gate as long as we stay under it. Good gravy. Special revelation, special empowerment. Special revelation and empowerment. Wow, sign me up. Special assignments. They come down out of that place. And do you know what? You can open them up anywhere. Mm, so, yeah, you can open up these gates just about anywhere. I mean, you could be you could be at Kmart, you know, you know, over there at, you know, at a blue light special. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, I need a special assignment from God right now. Dun, 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 dun. And so, you know, you, you get under the, the gate thing and, and then you, you can be transformed right there in the middle of Kmart. Because in Daniel 10, we see that Daniel, <laughs> That's just pulling Daniel into this. Daniel was praying. He'd been praying and fasting for 21 days so yeah, that the people yeah, yeah. Um, could be delivered. He was crying out to God, confessing sin for 21 days. But it says in the scripture that there was a battle in the heavens. Yeah. yeah. So when Gabriel or when uh, Gabriel finally came down, I think it was Michael with the answer. He said that he he had been fighting, or Michael rather, he said he had been fighting the principality of Persia, which is where Daniel had lived. Yeah, and so then Daniel, what he did is he he opened up one of these gates, and and you know, and then zoom, you know, and Michael was able to defeat the you know the prince of Persia. I mean, wow, yeah.
This is just like Battlestar Galactica. This is cool. For, for that 21 days. So what gave him the access then to bring Daniel the message? Mm-hmm. Is there a text that actually says what gave him the access? What gave the, 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 um, the victory in that battle uh-huh. was that there had been clearance through repentance. Ah, so he had, he had a pass because of repentance. He got clearance from you know the top down for there to be a gate that comes open to, so that Michael can come talk to him. Mm-hmm. And so a gate of God's glory had been established instead of a brass over heaven. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, you see, it's right there. I mean, it's right in the subtext. Uh, you know, so as you're reading the book of Daniel, you know, so you got you got lines, right? And then there's, you know, there's one line, and then underneath it there's another line. You know, the white space between the two lines? See, it's it's right in there, and you have to pull out a microscope and a fluorescent light, too. You know, I think you find this text in the fluorescent portion of scripture the enemy the principalities of of the demonic nature when we sin we give them power Mm. so they build fortresses so that the power of god cannot come down upon you yeah so these fortresses it's just like boom beach or clash of clans right when we stand and repent on behalf of the sins of a region, then it actually clears the region and allows the blessing of God to come through. Therefore, we... So we got to go and we got to repent on behalf of a region so that we can tear down demonic fortresses and strongholds so that the gate will open and, you know, and down will come, you know, special assignments and special revelation and stuff. Establish a gate. Yeah. When we first moved into Maricopa, we established a gate for the kingdom of heaven to manifest. (laughs) I mean, does she read sci-fi novels instead of the Bible? I mean, what is this? And we did repentance on behalf of the sins of this region. Uh, We did worship. You repented for other people rather than repent for yourself. Can you do that? To worship the Lord and exalt him over this region. And And then a gate opened up, right? We made decrees of the word of God. Yeah, yeah. And all of that combined open a portal that we live in now and enjoy the freedom. <laughs> Whatever the, you know, we need to check to see if the radiation levels uh, in this portal have exceeded, you know, good, you know, established health standards. Because my concern is, is that the radiation from the glory in this portal that she claims to have opened up by repenting for everybody else in this region. But, you know, um, yeah, I'm afraid that the uh, the glory radiation may have melted her brain. Very sad, very sad indeed. Um, <laughs> yeah, she again. She started off so well. I mean, she you know two passages in a row. She was paying attention to what was going on, and then whoosh! She just jumped the tracks, and she was off theologically free freewheeling out in the open range. And <laughs> and what we ended up with was well. You know, you know, sci-fi. That's pretty much it. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. When we come back, an emergent church update, and then also Apollo White, money-grubbing televangelist update. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> into another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with Patricia King. And that's a good thing. That's really, really a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. It's a great way to support us, by the way. And with the coffee prices as high as they are, literally, I mean, what it costs to support Fighting for the Faith on a monthly basis is pretty much two venti coffees at Starbucks, which is not a lot of money. Um, and, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 13344. 
Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support because we can't do what we're doing here without it. And if you haven't already picked up your 2014 Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt, you can do so by going to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the bake sale link at the top of the page and get your 2014 Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt to help us, um, you know, fill in the gaps of our <laughs> summer giving, which always is always down here. If you listen to the archives of Fighting for the Faith, it's you'll notice that there's a cyclical thing that goes on during the summers, and well, this is the summertime, so it's happened again. So anyway, moving along, it's time for an emergent church update. Here we go. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Tony Jones. Yes, Doug Paget is on vacation. Now over there, yes, on the on the uh, timpani, that's Brian McLaren, French horn, Peter Enns, and, and oh, and standing in. Second violin, second fiddle, Rachel Held Evans. Now, as you can tell, the Emergent Postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, they have been freed from the uh, limiting definitions of modernist notage, and uh, now they're just letting the spirit guide them. And, oh, this is avant-garde beyond all belief. Talk about creativity. Yeah, that's right. Civil society and modern culture, uh, postmodern culture, has hit an all-new high with the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra. Okay, so what we're going to be listening to is a portion of a brand new podcast. This is episode two of a podcast put out by a uh, group that calls themselves The Liturgists. And in here, we're going to have Science Mike interviewing Michael Gunger, the uh, musician, Christian musician, uh, regarding... Uh, well, Jesus' view of Genesis and uh, and how Gunger is, well, he's quite comfortable with the idea that maybe Jesus was wrong about Noah. Maybe Jesus was wrong about Adam and Eve. You know, and maybe he lied about this. It doesn't bother him that, you know, because, you know, yeah, <clears throat> let's uh, listen in. So here's uh, Science Mike asking the questions and kind of leading into this so that you can hear Michael Gunger, um, you know, give his answers. Uh, here we go. One other idea, Michael, um, and this is something I've thought about a lot, but I'd like to hear your take on it. Um, in many discussions with my friends, I actually had a rather lively discussion with some folks from the church I used to attend this morning on Facebook. Don't you just love uh, Facebook discussions of substance? Um, and they repeated a theme I've heard often, that Jesus himself spoke of the writings of Moses as if they were historical fact. And uh, yeah, he did, actually. And Jesus spoke of Noah as if he was a historical person. And he spoke of Cain and Abel as if they were historical people, which then presupposes, well, that 
how should we put this, that Adam and Eve, their parents actually were historical people as well. So, And then Jesus talks about marriage in the beginning, that it was between a man and a woman. And so he kind of references Adam and Eve and talks about them as if they're historical people. And then, you know, you got the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who basically makes the point that Jesus is the second Adam and talks about the fact that the reason why the world, you know, why humans are corrupted, broken, sinful, is because they've inherited a sinful nature from their first parent, all of us, that would be uh, their first parent, Adam and, you know, Adam and Eve. Right. So, yeah, the New Testament talks about the Old Testament as if it's history. Can you believe that? In all scriptures, God breathed. So, yes, Jesus did absolutely talk about Noah as if Noah was a legitimate historical person and Cain and Abel as if they were legitimate historical people. Adam and Eve as if they were legitimate historical people. Okay, and keep in mind, Jesus is God in human flesh. We continue. And therefore, to reject any of Moses' words as allegorical is to reject the divinity of Christ. What would you now, now, that's actually technically false. That's technically false. It's not to say to reject any of Moses' words as allegorical is somehow to reject Jesus Christ. That's, that's bunk. That somehow assumes that everything that... Uh, Moses wrote is only historical narrative. Now, here's what I mean by that. The Bible has different genres. Different genres are to be interpreted according to the genre that they are. For instance, the Psalms, their poetry, not written by Moses, by the way, uh, their poetry. And so there's there's flowery, allegorical, metaphorical language in, in the Psalms. And so, you know, you don't have to take things literally when obviously what's going on in a Psalm is that um, you know, there's there's flowery language being used in order to make a point, right? Okay, and then you have apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is intentionally, uh, you know, is uh, the message is shrouded in symbols and codes. This is true, and so yeah, you, you don't take the symbols literally, otherwise you kind of miss the point. And then you have historical narrative. Historical narrative is to be understood as well, just like the genre says historical narrative. So the question is, um, you know, it's, it, listen, it, you know, there may be things with, that Moses wrote that were intended to be understood allegorical, allegorically, but not the historical narrative portion of it. And Genesis 1-1 begins historical narrative. Yeah, no, no joke. Genesis 1-1 all the way through, in fact, all of the book of Genesis is historical narrative, just plain and simple. Um, so yeah, we've got, we've got an issue there. And, uh, but the, but see, then, you know, when Moses records the dreams of Joseph, well, those Joseph, the uh, Joseph's dreams had symbols in them. The, the symbols were not to be understood literally. The symbols were to be understood as pointing to something else. So there were, so within the writings of Moses, there are things that are to be understood as symbols. For instance, the seven sleek cows, the seven fat cows, the seven, fat you know you know healthy grain uh, uh, ears of corn and then the seven withered grains of corn you know uh, ears of corn right those are all symbols but those symbols are revealed in a historical narrative and by the way yes jesus absolutely took the the books of moses the uh, the, the torah as historical moses being the uh, the one who wrote these things down and what he wrote down is being revealed from god himself what you say to someone who holds that position i think you're making a lot of assumptions based in a perspective that was handed to you from our culture and that it's the way we think in the modern world is very different 
than how people thought in the pre-modern world. So here, here's the – this is such a postmodern argument, okay? So it's real simple. Well, see, you got to understand you're viewing this as a modernist and uh, the people in the postmodern world – not in the postmodern, but in, you know, in, in Jesus' times, they, they had no problem, no problem whatsoever with this idea that, oh, this is just mythology. Uh-huh. Yeah. And to just see a few words that somebody said, that Jesus said about Noah – and to assume that you can get into Jesus's mind and know exactly how he thought about the whole situation and how he considered history versus myth versus whatever. How do you know? How do you know? And even if he was wrong, even if he did believe. Now, here comes the really important part. Um, that Noah was a historical person or Adam was a historical person and ended up being wrong. I don't understand how that even would deny the divinity of Christ. Uh, well, it's real simple, actually, Michael. It's very, very simple, and that is is that Jesus is the God-man, and uh, Numbers 23 makes it very clear that God cannot lie. Yeah, it is contrary to God's nature to lie, and Jesus is the God-man. If, if he's saying that uh, Adam was a historical person, that Noah was a historical person, um, and they weren't, He's telling falsehoods. And keep in mind, as the God-man, well, you know, he's, he's privy to special information. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus talks about Abraham as if he knew Abraham. And the Jews picked up on this, and they said, you are not yet 50 years old, and yet you, you, you know Abraham, right? And then Jesus' retort back is, before Abraham was, I am, invoking the divine name from Genesis chapter 3 for himself. Okay, and they took up stones to stone him because they thought he'd committed the sin of blasphemy by claiming to be God. So, yeah, th- there is there's this interesting thing going on here. Now, it's also important to note that Jesus, as a human being, okay, now this is where it gets interesting, is that in the incarnation, Jesus is God-man, and yet he did not avail himself fully of uh, the attributes of the divinity. Uh, Philippians 2 makes this very clear. When it talks about how he, you know, he emptied himself, was found in the form of a servant, and was obedient to to, to God, you know, even to the point of death on a cross. And so then in Luke, you have this idea that Jesus grows in knowledge and in stature. And so the idea is, is as the God Man, he doesn't avail himself of everything that he can regarding uh, his divinity. Okay, so that Jesus grows up and he learns things as a kid. No problem with that. None whatsoever. Scriptures are very clear on this. But it's also important to note that Jesus claims that his message comes directly from the Father. Jesus never claimed that he, you know, he was just making stuff up or, or that you know, the, the knowledge that he had, the abilities that he had, even as the God-man, to be able to see into a person's heart and know what kind of a person a person was, uh, the ability to walk on water, to raise the dead, to you know, give sight to the blind, all of these are in accord with his divinity. So Jesus had limited, he made, how shall we say this, limited use of his divinity, Okay, and at the same time, made it, makes it very clear that he relied heavily on the Father. Okay, John chapter five kind of be- bears this out. Here's what it says: John chapter five, verse nineteen. Jesus said to them, "Amen, amen." Or truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, 
but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he, all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may, may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Yeah, notice here that Jesus is, even his message is intimately linked with uh, with the Father. Okay, he sees what the Father is doing. He hears what the Father wants to have said, and he says those things. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot more going on here. That if you basically say that Jesus erred regarding Noah and Adam, well, the result, the end result of that really is that Jesus isn't God. That's the result. You can't have Jesus being the God Man and having direct revelation and being intimately linked with the Father. And then absolutely, con- and then conveying to us as human beings false information about the origin of the, of the planet, the origin of our species, and 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 the world, you know, and the universe in general. That just doesn't work that way. So, um, yeah, f- for Michael Gunger to say this shows that uh, he, well, he's got problems here. This is the kind of doubt that we expect from postmodern liberals. Uh, this is their thing. Uh, yeah, that's okay. We'll just embrace mystery or something, right? The whole idea of the divinity of Christ being fully human and fully God, that God lowered himself to become a human being with a human brain in a human culture with human language and human needs and human limitations. Um, well, the scripture seems to indicate, at least in some degree, that uh, Christ is not as as omniscient as God the Father, um, because if we take if we just take Scripture at yes, and that but the ergo of that is not well. That means well, Jesus could have been wrong or lied to us regarding Adam and Noah. Eh, wrong, because again, Jesus's message is intimately linked with the Father, and Jesus affirms that the writings of the Torah are the very word of God. That's what he affirms. Word of God and God cannot lie, which, in other words, what Moses said is the truth. Face value, uh, it seems to indicate that the only being, if we would even use that word, with knowledge of uh, how and when things will end is God the Father that not even Jesus knows. Yeah, again, when Jesus said that he, no one knows the, the day or the hour in which the Son of Man returns, okay, to judge the living and the dead, Jesus is speaking prior to his ascension into heaven and still speaking, you know, in in, in his humble state uh, in the incarnation. So that's what he's talking about. Now, does Jesus know now? Yeah, he does. But again, this is to, basically this is to play fast and loose with the uh, with Jesus's humble state in the incarnation and somehow extrapolate from that. Well, that could mean that Jesus wasn't telling us the truth regarding Moses and Noah and Adam. Wrong. Good one. And that seems to imply some limitations on the scope of knowledge and insight for Christ incarnate versus the source of all. You know, that, of course, will freak a lot of people out. And I don't think you need to go there necessarily to say that Jesus was wrong about it. Um, Again, if Jesus is wrong, he's not God, and he didn't get his message from the Father. But it, the point is, it wouldn't freak me out if he was wrong about it. 
in his human human side. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I, I still don't see, yeah, the issue because if Noah and Adam were mythical ideas, the point of what Jesus was saying still applies to me. The point of them still being in the scriptures still applies to me. It has, it has very little. What's the point if they're portrayed as historical people and the history never happened? What's the point again? So the Old Testament is basically Aesop's fables? To do, in my perspective, with Jesus trying to lay out a history of the world for a historical-minded people or, uh, or trying to try to explain the science of how things came into being to a pre-modern people. You know, even if Jesus knew that Noah and Adam were mythical, but knew he was talking to people that may have thought they were real, that's another possibility. He's just referring to to the story that he's part of. He's just Jewish to these Jewish people that know that story, and it speaks of a million things. When they hear about Noah, they have a whole world that's that that has been created around their story and created, not a real history, but a created story. You know, kind of like the story of Rome and Romulus and Ramus, right? You know, feeding, you know, basically saved by a she-wolf, you know, that story. And that speaks to a hundred things to them. So for him to use that story, um, of course he would. He's using their language, you know. He's speaking human language, and he's speaking within human culture. Um, and I think that's a lot of times what we, in the modern world, we like to try to imagine the Bible, uh, you know, at least at least for like modern evangelicals, especially Americans, it seems like. We like to imagine it as without context, without culture, but just this sort of objective, pure source of truth that all you have to do is read it, and it's clear, and you just believe it. Now, it's true that the, the Bible emerges within particular cultural contexts, but even pre-modern people understood the difference between history and mythology between propaganda and truth. Yeah, and yeah, so basically what's at stake here with the Michael Gunger's view? Well, if Jesus can be wrong about this, Jesus lied. He didn't tell us the truth. He really wasn't getting his message from the Father, and therefore Jesus isn't God. No, he's something different. And if you can't trust Jesus regarding Adam and Noah, can you really trust that he really died on the cross for your sins? I don't think so. And then the the next question, of course, that he was begged with something like that. Can you trust the disciples when they tell us that Jesus actually bodily rose from the grave? How do you know that wasn't myth, too? Because they're portraying it as historical narrative. Yeah, just like the Genesis story is historical narrative. Well, you know, if Jesus was wrong about Adam and Noah, and he knew, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that that was really actually mythology— um, and then, you know, of course, the, uh, you know, Jesus's body is probably moldering somewhere. But the apostles, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, they made a myth about Jesus that he rose again from the dead. And yet scripture makes it perfectly clear. If Jesus is still dead, then you're still dead in your de- trespasses and sins and you're without hope in the world. Think about it. Moving along. Yep, time for a money-grabbing televangelist update. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce. Hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. El dinero. Wanna be a millionaire. Give me money, 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 money. 
I want that green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of loot and whistle for wearing the green. I got that monetary itis, like me, just like he might as want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle, want that tender that is legal and financially substantially, and his sum I can inveigle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. All right, that's Dr. Teeth in our money-grubbing televangelist update music. Money, money, money. Now, what we're going to be listening to is, well, um, <clears throat> yeah, Paula White's take on uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And you'll notice that all the Bible twisters, what they do with it, they put a period there when it's not a period. That's not. That's only half the sentence. Yeah. The next part of the sentence points us to the written Word of God. But uh, you think uh, Paula White's going to do that? No, she's not going to point us to the written Word of God, nor is she going to quote this in context. Why? Because she's quintessentially one of these people who twists Scripture and tell people what their itching ears want to hear so that she can make a big fat pile of money. That's what Paula White's really all about. Here we go. We've been talking about vision. Everybody stand up. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. I'm going to challenge you for about 20 minutes. Is that okay? Do I have 20 minutes of time? Look at somebody. Say, give her at least 15. Just just say, give her 15. Say, go, Pastor. Y'all made me feel good. I can dismiss right now. Go, Pastor. Uh, the Bible says that you can't be a pastor. You're not a man. But I want to leave you a few principles on vision because we're, we're almost at the end of this. But this sermon is an unapologetic assault on boredom, on distraction, on mediocrity, on withdrawal, on anything that is called mediocrity. Mm-hmm. That's a mediocre way to talk about mediocrity, don't you think? you to live a normal life. I came to convict you from your comfort zone. I came to, to, to cause you to get uncomfortable in a situation that you're living smaller than the life God wants you to live. Well, your Bible twisting makes me uncomfortable. So does that work? That the life God put you in is larger than the one you're living. And I call you to come on up in the name of Jesus. I call you to arise. Come on. I call you to come into your being. Slap somebody. Say, if you had a clue who you were sitting next to, you would smile more. Tell them, say you would smile more. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Proverbs 29 verse 18, where there is no vision, the people do what? Perish. Let's say it real loud. Where there is no vision, the people perish. A vision is a mental picture of a... It knows how fast that goes. Oh, look, 29, 18, Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. See, da-da. And what a vision is, is no, 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 no. Read the rest of the sentence. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but, uh-huh, blessed is he who keeps the Torah, the written word of God. Ah, the prophetic vision that we need to keep from casting off restraint isn't some vision regarding an ideal future. It's the written word of God. Yep, that's what's going on in this text. Future state. Can you see yourself in your future? Can you see your family in your future? Can you see your finances in your future? Can you see the city of destiny in your future? Come on, a mental picture of a... The city of destiny in your future. Whew. 
Sounds important. Future state. I want you to get a picture. See, the Holy Spirit's going to give you an internal photograph right now, and, and he's going to show you. No, he's not. That's not what this is about. You somewhere in your future that's looking a whole lot better than anywhere you've ever been. I don't care what you've gone through, what you came out of. It does not determine what God has for you. The devil is a liar. See, God can pull you out of a pit and put you to a palace just like that. You better slap somebody, say, don't judge me. I'm going somewhere where there is no vision. The people perish. To perish means to be naked, to be uncovered, to be exposed. It means to cast off restraints. You see, see, as long as you don't have a vision, then you will be uncovered. You'll be naked. You'll be exposed. But let's reverse that. People with the vision have life. So people without a vision perish. They die. But people with the vision, if you have a vision. That's right. If you have the written word of God and you believe it. Believe what it teaches regarding Jesus, because the scriptures testify about Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. Oh, yeah, that's right. You don't cast off restraint. You have life. Well, I agree if that's what you mean by vision, but that's not what you mean, is it? You can take everything else out. Ask Nelson Mandela when he was alive. They took away his freedom. They took away his food. They took away his family. They took away his friends, but they could not take what God had shown him on the inside. You see, if you've got a picture of it on the inside, I don't care what happens to you on the outside. If God be for you, then who can be against you? I want you to see yourself as God sees you. Every- yeah, <laughs> I want I want you to see yourself. See, see, see you, 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 you. I, 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 I. And what is she doing? Filling these people's brains with narcissistic false doc- doctrine to make them feel like they are so super de duper important. The, the world probably couldn't even function without them. Everything that has caused you not to see with clarity, I break it by the blood of Jesus right now. Spirit of the living God, do what only you can do. I thank you that I'm speaking to vision carriers today, that we run with the vision, that we're able... Speaking to vision carriers, yeah. Yeah, again, this theology ain't taught in the Bible. ...to implement it, that we're able to execute it this day. Give us the ability, the empowerment, the advantage to act out and to move on what you've shown us in Jesus' name. You can be seated. A, a vision is a mental picture of a future state. Is a God in... Yeah, that's not what this is talking about in Proverbs 29, 18. It's talking about the written word of God. ...fired hope and expectation planted in the heart of a man and woman, made real in their imagination by the Holy Spirit. Made real in their imagination imagination yeah that was something we used to play here at fighting for the faith there was a snippet that i had long ago i wonder if i still have it um you know from the uh from disney's um what was the name of that um a phantasmic show was the name of it and i used to play this music that would imagination because you know over and over again you know for a long time i was hearing people all they would talk about is imagination. Oh, there it is. There it is. I found it. I, I have it in my soundboard. Hang on a second here. That's right. The Holy Spirit's going to put a vision down in your imagination. Wrong. So the Holy Spirit plants a seed in your heart, which means heart has to be kept because that's the ground. That's why you guard your heart with all diligence. Nobody is worth you forfeiting your destiny. No. <laughs> wow. Is th- this is just horrifyingly self-centered. 
Nobody is worth you getting that angry or walking in forgiveness. Release them. No one is worth you missing it. The devil is a liar. You say, but if you only knew what they did to me, they made me so mad. They made me this. Nobody can make you anything. It's just giving you an opportunity. Yeah, if somebody makes you mad, have you ever heard of uh, Matthew 28 and the importance of forgiving? Uh-huh. Forgiving. Yeah, forgiveness is how we deal with people who make us mad. Because Why? Well, because we're forgiven by Christ. Either grow or is it either look at it this way. Everything in your life was either a blessing or a lesson. If it wasn't a blessing in your life, it was teaching you something. Thank God for what you learn. In fact, some of you should praise God for your enemies because your enemies do a lot more for you than any of your friends have ever done for you. You should thank God because every hater made you stronger. Come on. Every hater. Hater. Yeah. So you got a bunch of haters out there, huh? Yeah. Wow. Every doubter made you believe better. Every person that said you can't made you push in and say, but with God, I can. Every person that said, no way. Everyone that called me and said, that's why it just it moved me so much to hear you, Pastor Ronnie. Because sometimes you go through the motions of ministry you do and you think, does my life matter? Does it make a difference? And when you hear that testimony, because people say, you know, people say all kinds of things. You're not ministry material. You can't do this. Well, the devil is a liar. You can do all things with God on your side. He's just looking for somebody that he can use this morning. Uh, man. You got the picture. Um, everything she's said, in, starting with the out-of-context half-verse, um, none of it's actually true biblical doctrine. She's filling these heads people with... Well, sorry, heads people. People's heads. <laughs> Stop it and back it up and reverse. And you have people, She's filling people's heads with utter nonsense. All in the name of Jesus. And keep in mind, she shouldn't even be preaching because Scripture forbids women from being pastors. It's not that God doesn't love women. He does. It's just that men and women have different roles, even within the church. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, again, if somebody's telling you that, uh, you know, you need to get a, a unique vision from God for your ideal future, uh, because Proverbs 29, uh, 18 says, without a vision, people perish. That person is somebody who doesn't, is not qualified to teach because, I mean, seriously, if they don't have enough hermeneutical skill to know that they're, that, that, you know, they're quoting half of a verse rather than giving you what the text actually says, they, they don't, they're, they're, they're just not qualified to be a pastor. A pastor is somebody who's studied and shown himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment but who can rightly divide and handle the word of truth. Paula White? Yeah, not at all. Anybody who twists Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, just consider that as a disqualifying red flag, and I think you'll be in good hands when you find a pastor who actually knows how to rightly handle that. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Meyer Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Meyer Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end off the week with a couple of good sermons from the Reverend Dr. Matt Richard. Oh, you're going to love it. It's good stuff. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> 
listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off the way we normally end the weeks off here at Fighting for the Faith with a good sermon. Actually, two of them. And as you can tell, I've been out there scouring, looking for some new talent. <laughs> I was thrilled we can add Mark Bestial to our rotation. Well, we're going to be adding uh, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard as well. Let's give the details here. Hold on a second. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons come to us via the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard from Zion Lutheran Church of Gwinner, North Dakota. That's right. It's just down the down down a little ways from me. Now, the first sermon we're going to be listening to, I have to read the uh, texts for you. Uh, the text is based upon Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And the name of the sermon is, If Jesus is not a life coach, your BFF, a wise guru, or a political revolutionary, who is he then? Yeah, that's, that's the name of the sermon. <laughs> it's a good sermon. Anyway, second sermon is based upon the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. And the name of the sermon is entitled, Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but my Jesus would never dot, dot, dot. Yep, that's the name of the sermon. Whew. These are zingers of sermons that you're going to love these. Anyway, let me go ahead and back off the music here and hit the pause button. And what we're going to do is I'm going to read to you the uh, 
text that forms the basis of Sermon Numero Uno, which we'll be playing for you shortly here. And uh, the text again is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, which reads, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Well, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All right, here is sermon number one from the Reverend Dr. Matt Richard, entitled, If Jesus is not a life coach, your BFF, a wise guru, or a political revolutionary, who is he then? Jesus was coming into the region of Caesarea Philippi. It was a region that had royal wealth, and it had indeed a lot of power. It was also a region that was filled with idols, a lot of idols, as well as what we would know as Greek culture. It was in this context, though, that Jesus poses this question to his disciples. He asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, before we examine the disciples' response and their answer to this question of who people say Jesus is, Let me ask you the same question here today. Is Jesus a mascot that cheers us on in this life as we stumble in sin and valiantly get up to fight another day? Who is Jesus? Is he a life coach who trains us and shows us how to live a kind of an example that one must follow? Is Jesus a best friend forever, you know, a BFF, who merely cuddles little lambs. Was Jesus an overconfident Jewish rabbi preacher that found the true and secret path to right living? Was Jesus a mere carpenter who was crucified by the Jewish people? Who do people say that Jesus is today? Like today, there were many opinions in the first century as well on Jesus' identity Like today, most of the opinions in the first century were based on, you know, guesses and personal uninformed opinions, political and national hopes, and vacuous, yes, vacuous conjectures. After asking the question of who do people say that I am, Jesus directs this question to his disciples. He says to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter who was typically an emotional guy that operated on gut reactions, responded to this question by saying this. He said, you, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, did you just hear that confession, my friends? Do not be too quick to gloss over it. Even though Peter uses very few words and does not use exaggeration or extravagant language, and does not formulate his answer to Jesus in an academic thesis, it is nonetheless very direct. It is true in every respect. In other words, 
the confession of St. Peter can hardly be improved on, for it was given to him from the highest source. Listen to it again. You are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice that this great confession does not confess that Jesus is a mere mascot for a political revolution or a life coach or a best friend or a wise guru or a motivational speaker or a good role model or a mere carpenter or merely a good teacher. No, this confession of Peter is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why this confession is so simply so profound for you and I to consider today is that Peter did not garner this confession from all the opinions and thoughts about Jesus from the day. He did not take a public opinion poll. He did not issue surveys or work with a focus group to derive the identity of Jesus. Peter also did not dream this confession up on his own because this confession is not derived from flesh and blood but rather it was revealed to Peter, it was revealed to him from the Father in heaven. My friends, when it comes to the identity of Jesus, the opinions of Oprah or Dr. Phil, the assertions of popular contemporary songs, the sentiments of sport athletes, the belief of movie stars, and the views of philosophers really hold no weight. Yes, they hold no weight for Jesus' identity For Jesus' identity is not derived from mankind, but it is revealed to you and to me from heaven. In a word, Peter is confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He is confessing that Jesus is not just one person among many, but the one, the one climactic figure in whom God's purpose is finally being accomplished Peter is confessing that Jesus is the one that Israel had been waiting for and looking for. Peter is confessing that Jesus is the one that was promised in all the Old Testament scriptures. He was the one anointed to do something remarkable. But this now leads us to this next question. He was led to do and anointed to do something remarkable. What exactly is that? To do what? What was Jesus anointed to do? What does the Christ do and for whom does he do it? Now at this point in Matthew chapter 16 from our gospel reading from today, Jesus, he knew that the disciples would not fully know and understand the answer to the question, that question that he posed to them until after he suffered and died and rose from the dead. In other words, they would not fully understand every implication of what Peter had just confessed until all the events of Jesus' ministry unraveled. That is the reason that Jesus gave this little odd instruction near the end of today's reading. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He did not want the disciples to teach the wrong understanding of what it means to be the Christ. Thus, even though Peter's confession was indeed spot on, the disciples did not fully comprehend everything that the Christ was anointed to do and to accomplish. Today, though, you've heard the great confession of Peter from the written word of God. 
the confession that was revealed to Peter by the Father. Unlike the disciples in our text, though, you, yes, you, have had the privilege to hear what the radio announcer Paul Harvey says is the rest of the story. Indeed, God's word has proclaimed to you the rest of the story of Jesus the Christ so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Otherwise stated, you have heard that Jesus went to the cross where he was crucified, died, and buried for you. You've heard the words that Jesus is not in the tomb, that he is not among the dead. You've heard that Jesus ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father in glory and power. Therefore, dear friends, today, yes, today, who do you say Jesus is? Baptized saints of Zion Lutheran Church, may we confess today that we believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is our Lord, who has redeemed us, lost and condemned persons, purchased and won us from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy and precious blood, and with his innocent suffering and death, that we may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. May we confess this because it is indeed most certainly true. This confession of ours and the confession of Peter is most certainly a pure gift to us. For we cannot believe or confess Jesus as Lord or come to him unless the Holy Spirit has called us by the gospel and enlightened us. Thus Peter's confession and our confession here today is a pure gift that does not come from all the conjectures and of the opinions of mankind, but it comes as a revelation to us, a gift to us from the Lord. Not only is this confession a great gift to Peter and to us, for we could not derive such a confession by our own thoughts, but this great confession of who Jesus is, is that which the church is built upon. In other words, my friends, baptized saints, do you realize that this church, yes, this church and the church at large, are both built upon this great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yes, according to Jesus, in our gospel reading from today, this confession that came out of the mouth of Peter and the confession that has been revealed to you and to me is the strength of the church and the foundation upon which the church stands. Thus, like the hundreds of Christians, yes, the hundreds of Christians that have come before you, you are here because of what Christ did for you. You are here because the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, has called you. He has enlightened you, placed this confession in your mouths, and placed you in the church, Christ's church, the church that is gathered around and upon who Jesus is. What this means is that the strength of this church, yes, this church, Zion Lutheran Church, is neither in your individual willpower nor your cumulative strength, but it is upon this great confession that Jesus Christ 
is the son of the living God for you and for me. Practically stated, my friends, this church and the church at large is not built upon bricks, wood, or steel. Church councils, paid staff, church polity, constitution, bylaws, Robert's rules of order, programs, ministries, socials, friendships, relationships, activities, and so forth, as indeed important as these things sometimes are. The church is not even built upon a forged Jesus who is only a mere example, mascot, moral teacher, life coach, and so forth. Truly the church is not built upon you and me. It is not built upon a plastic counterfeit Messiah. For a church that is built upon these things cannot stand and will not, I repeat, will not persevere. Rather the church, the church that is called, the church that is gathered and enlightened and sanctified by Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is built upon the solid and sturdy confession of who Christ is. Yes, upon this confession of who Jesus is, nothing will overcome the called church. Indeed, it has the strength of God himself to overcome the gates of hell itself. You and I must keep in mind, though, that Jesus does not say that there will not be sorrow and danger and pain for the church. For indeed, history has shown us that Christ's bride, the church, has been beaten and bruised by the world. With that said, though, Jesus does say that the final victory, yes, the final victory will go to the called-out church. That is to say, the gates of Hades are wicked and false doctrines which seduce people away from the truth of the gospel into the pits of hell. However, no scheme of man can change the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even more, the events of the past, the events of the present and future cannot change this objective, assuring fact that Jesus is the Christ who suffered, who died, who rose and lives today for you. The church, my friends, rests upon this. By the same token, Satan and his evil cohorts cannot defeat the church. The church will never be defeated by the hosts of darkness, no matter how dark it may get. The reason why? Blood was shed on the cross. Blood was shed on the cross, and the tomb is empty. It was shed for you. The tomb has been revealed as empty for you. Take comfort, dear flock, for the powers of sin... The powers of death and the devil shall not prevail against the church, for the church is founded upon the Lord and the giver of life. It is founded upon the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed saints, all in all, Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God. He is our righteousness our sanctification, our redemption. He is the cornerstone of the church and the cornerstone of your faith for this life and the one to come. He is the cornerstone of this church here and now and the years to come. Amen.
I told you it was good. I told you. I told you it was good. Okay. Sermon number two. I say I'm excited for sermon number two now. Sermon number two is based upon the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 28, which reads, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the text that forms the basis of sermon number two, uh, entitled, Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but my Jesus would never dot, dot, dot. Here again is the Reverend Matthew Richard. If the Apostle Peter would have had his way, if he would have gotten his way, you and I would be left in our sins and damned to an eternity apart from the Lord. Yes, if he would have gotten his way, you and I would be left in our sins and damned for an eternity apart from him. Permit me to explain. In last week's gospel reading, we heard the remarkable confession from Peter where he said that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, in today's gospel reading that we read just recently here, we heard that Jesus goes on to explain exactly what it meant for him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, reading last week's gospel reading together with the text from this morning, we can understand that Right after, right after Peter's great and marvelous confession, Jesus goes on to show the disciples just what it meant, just what it meant for him to be the Christ. That is to say, Jesus explained that he, as the Christ, must go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die at the expense of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that underneath them he would be killed and on the third day be raised again. But you may say to yourself, what does this have to do with you and I being possibly damned in our sins forever? Well, as we heard in our gospel reading from today, it was hard, indeed, it was very hard for the apostle Peter to accept Jesus' explanation of what it meant to be the Christ, especially that whole suffering and dying part. Peter was attempting to think about Jesus according to a man-centered way. Thus, Peter, he took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him, saying to him, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Otherwise stated, Peter just made this great, this wonderful, this great confession that Jesus is the Christ. And then Peter hears that the gates of Hades will not overcome the church. What confidence and joy this must have given to the disciples who were following Christ all those years. But then, Jesus, he goes on. 
He goes on to ruin all this optimism by explaining what it means for him to be the Christ, that he is going to suffer and die and be raised. Jesus goes on to share that it is indeed necessary, it is necessary for him to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders. Something that Peter certainly did not want to hear and certainly did not want to happen. I, I can imagine Peter saying to himself and mumbling to himself, Jesus, if, if, if you are the son of the living God, why on earth is it necessary for you to suffer and die? Jesus, you are God in the flesh. You are the son of man with authority and power. The church will be founded upon you, and the gates of Hades will not overcome. Therefore, what on earth is this talk about death and suffering? Ugh, enough with this dreadful suffering and dying talk. What about conquering the Romans? What about victory? What went wrong with Peter is what goes wrong with you and me today. We subordinate who Christ is to how we figure things should be with Jesus. Yes, Peter, he subordinated the Christ, the Son of the living God, to his definition of the Christ. Peter, he worked these words about Jesus being the Messiah, his way to what worked for him. Peter would not let Jesus be the Christ, his way. Peter would lay on Jesus the sort of Christ that he wanted him to be. Therefore, if Peter would have gotten his way, Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross, thus resulting in salvation being unaccomplished, thus resulting in you and I being damned to hell, if Peter would have stopped Jesus from being the Messiah, according to Jesus' perspective, the results would have been disastrous for the lost sheep of Israel and for the helpless sheep of the world, that is, you and me. My friends, this temptation to redefine Jesus is before each and every one of us. It really is. If we were in Peter's shoes, we would have recoiled in horror to Jesus' talk of suffering and death. Like Peter, we would have said to ourselves, if Jesus is God's Christ, then let there be an end to this defeatist talk about suffering and about death. Like Peter... We are given the great confession upon our, upon our minds and upon our tongues and lips that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then we inadvertently and inadvertently take control of these words given to us as a gift. We commandeer these great words, this great confession, these words reveal to us, and then we redefine what they mean according to our hopes, our dreams, and our desires. We do this because it is the way that it is with our idolatrous hearts. You see, any time that we, yes, we, you and me, any time that we entertain thoughts about God that are unworthy of him, we are breaking the first commandment and committing the sin of idolatry. In other words, idolatry is rather sneaky. Because it allows the opportunity to not totally reject the Lord, but an opportunity to simply redefine him according to one's own desires. That is to say, one can add an expansion pack of supposed divine ideologies upon the Lord and not necessarily have to reject the Lord himself. This tactic 
of not rejecting the Lord, but redefining him according to our own agendas is the result of our old sinful Adam, our sinful nature. Keep in mind that your sinful nature, that is your corrupt and evil nature that you have inherited from Adam's fall into sin, does not believe the gospel, has never believed the gospel, and never will believe the gospel. The old Adam operates from the context of unbelief. The sinful nature wants to be independent, not dependent. This old Adam, this sinful nature, wants to have everything including the Lord underneath his thumb. This freedom and control can be cleverly attained, though, through the means of idolatry. To put it briefly, the old Adam is sly in that he won't flatly out reject the Christ and the gospel for fear of being exposed. Rather, the sinful nature will attempt to redefine Christ into his own image. Jesus, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but my Jesus doesn't judge anyone and loves everyone. Jesus, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but my Jesus wouldn't send anyone to hell. Jesus, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, but my Jesus embraces all forms of sexuality and lifestyles. Jesus, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, but my Jesus makes me stronger, more likable, and better by teaching me to believe in myself. Jesus, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, but my Jesus mainly teaches me how to be better by obeying his commandments and isn't really into all that cross-bearing and dying stuff. Jesus, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but my Jesus is not going to suffer and die but indeed overthrow the Roman Empire. Dear friends, when we hijack and redefine Jesus according to our own definitions and agendas, we become the mouthpiece and the tool of Satan. This is surely what Peter did to Jesus by attempting to redefine the mission and the work and the person of Christ. This is what you and I do when we take Jesus' words, his biblical truths about himself and his mission of the cross and simply run with them according to our own schemes. Indeed, defining Christ according to our own man-centered opinions and our desires and our hopes and our dreams, rather than letting Christ simply speak for himself through his word, is doing the work of Satan. Keep in mind that Satan, in the wilderness, attempted to lure Jesus into the path of power toward the goal of seizing glory, away from the lowliness and obedience, away from suffering and dying for sin. Peter, in the same way, denies the path of suffering and death. He does not see it as a plan of the Lord's salvation, and thus he does the work of Satan. What shall we say then? What shall we do in response to this, really, this sobering reality today? My friends, repent. May the Lord grant repentance to each and every one of us for our attempts to confiscate Jesus and put him into our debt. May we be granted the eyes to see that this sin is most definitely the fruit of the stubborn and rebellious sinful nature. 
right here and right now, is yet another opportunity for the old Adam, together with all of its sins, to be drowned and put to death. My friends, Peter, with this hijacking actions, his hijacking actions towards Jesus, was not some mighty hero of the faith. He was not some prince of the church, number one pope. That is to say, you cannot be a bigger sinner than Peter with his satanic Christology. Nevertheless, Jesus did not give up on Peter, and he does not give up on you today. Consider this, Jesus rebuked Peter to get behind him, not only because Peter was dead wrong, but because Peter would not stand in Jesus' way of the cross. Peter would not stand in Jesus' way for it was necessary, despite what Peter's opinion was, for Jesus to suffer and die and be raised again. In other words, despite Peter's roadblock, despite him trying to redefine Jesus' mission and purpose, and despite Peter's sin, Jesus resisted this temptation, cast Peter and the temptations aside, and kept his appointment with the cross. Why? Because Peter needed redemption for his sin. Why? Because you and I need forgiveness for our sins. The bottom line is this, that Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, this confession that is so true is the one that prevails. To put it another way, Jesus does not act according to Peter's definition of who he is and what Peter thinks he should do. Jesus also does not act according to our sinful definitions of who we think he is or who we think he needs to be. He is Lord and we are not. He is not handcuffed to our definitions. He does not yield to Peter's objections, but cast Peter's objections and his temptation of Satan behind him and walk directly into the suffering, walks directly into the pain and death of sin walks directly towards the Mount Calvary. And my friends, he considers it well worthwhile. Baptized saints, the good news is that Satan is indeed put behind Jesus and his definitions. These definitions of who mankind thinks Jesus should be do not stick to the Christ, keeping him from his divine mandate of the cross. Neither the forces of evil nor human denial could keep Christ from the cross, the cross that he went to for Peter, the cross that he went to for you and for me. Therefore, my friends, take comfort. It was necessary for the Christ to die. God planned it. Jesus carried out the plan with complete and total faithfulness because it was and is necessary that he suffer and that he die and be raised for you for your idolatry, for your past sins, for your present sins, for your future sins. It was necessary for him to suffer and die and be raised for your forgiveness and so that he might clothe you, yes, clothe you in radiant righteousness and declare you his own for all eternity. Amen. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. 
for all of your sins. Amen.